Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your co-host, Amanda Joyce Hall. Today, in my interview with Dr. Jelani Favors, we discuss his award-winning new book entitled Shelter in a Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Foster Generations of Leadership and Activism. The title is currently out with the University of North Carolina Press, and it is the recipient of the Lillian Smith Book Award, the Museum of African American History Stone Book Award, and a finalist for the Pauli Murray African American Intellectual History Society Book Prize. At present, Dr. Jelani Favors is an Associate Professor of History at Clayton State University. In Shelter in a Time of Storm, Favors reveals how Black colleges created freedom fighters and helped strengthen Black freedom movements in the U.S. from Reconstruction through the present day. Favors argues that HBCUs were fortified interstitial spaces for consciousness raising and solidarity building among race men and race women. HBCU students, faculty, and administrators were vital players in fashioning blueprints for Black liberation and ensuring the intergenerational transmission of resistance wisdom. Taking the long view and moving through a tour of Black higher education, Favors theorizes that a second hidden curriculum and a Black college communitas thrived on each campus, making them both seedbeds of racial justice and shelter in a time of storm. We plan to discuss this and more in our interview. Dr. Favors, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here with you and looking forward to the conversation. We are so glad that you are here. Can you tell us about yourself and your journey to history and African-American studies and maybe how you approach the work of Black studies today? Absolutely. So, uh, again, Jelani Favors, born and raised in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, you know, I grew up and, and, you know, the book is really kind of focused on discussing and dealing with the power of racialized spaces. And I was also exposed to racialized spaces growing up. I was exposed to the power of black institutions, um, black institutions, meaning black colleges, um, Black churches, Black organizations, uh, race men and race women. Um, so all of that really kind of shaped my understanding of uh, uh, and, and sense of self. Uh, but it also, again, gave me a sense of, of direction and a sense of, of vision about what I wanted to do with my life. So I was fortunate um, to be raised mm-hmm. in that type of environment and to be shaped by those type of forces. Uh, and that carried on into my decision to attend an HBCU coming out of undergrad. Uh, I wanted to be, uh, continue in, in that type of space. I want to continue to be molded and shaped um, by those type of folks. And, and uh, you know, I grew up in North Carolina, so HBCUs were quite common in the state. In fact, North Carolina had, uh, I believe still has more HBCUs than any other state uh, in, the, uh, in the country. So uh, the idea of attending an HBCU was never something that was foreign um, for me, it was something that would just seem that something that I should do. And so uh, I started off, I went to North Carolina Central University, 
Uh, then I transferred uh, to North Carolina A&T State University uh, after my freshman year. My father passed away suddenly uh, my freshman year in college, and I transferred uh, to North Carolina A&T, which is right down the road. Uh, so North Carolina Central is in Durham. North Carolina A&T is in Greensboro. They're about 45 to 50 minutes apart. Uh, but it was transferring to A&T at a very critical moment in my life. Um, they really displayed for me the power and the empathy that are, that are found often within these institutions. I had people who believed in me at times when I didn't believe in myself. I had uh, professors who would call me, who would encourage me, who would uh, push me forward, who would never let me get down on myself or, or, or not believe in my talents and my skills. And, and that played a critical role in shaping who I am. So uh, one of the things that we were exposed to as a as a senior, uh, my senior year at North Carolina A&T was a, a seminar, a conference that uh, our, our uh, department leaders put on that was entitled Missing Pages. Uh, and, and the whole purpose of that seminar slash conference was to expose students to the idea of historiography and, and how important it is to fill in those missing pages, to fill in those missing gaps, to identify what those gaps are. And so when I, I left A&T and headed off to to grad school at Ohio State University in Columbus in 1997, um, I already had a strong sense of of why historiography was important and why identifying what those gaps are uh, and trying to fill in those missing pages, um, why that was critically important. And and so when I arrived there at, at Ohio State, um, you know, that just, it, it was a launching point for me intellectually to continue along the path that um, had already begun uh, as a student at A&T. Right. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. How did you come to write Shelter in a Time of Storm? Uh, so, you know, I write, you know, ironically, when I when I showed up at, at Ohio State in 1997, again, I'm a product of North Carolina A&T. And as many of your listeners probably know, A&T is where um, the sit-ins um, exploded on February 1st, 1960. Um, and that is not lost upon any student that attends A&T. We talk about that a lot. You know, we we hang our hat um, with great pride. In fact, one of the sayings that we often say is, as students and alumni of A&T, we often say Aggie pride. Uh, and, and so uh, Aggies, of course, are the the, the, the mascot uh, of, of the institution. So uh, we talk about the idea of Aggie pride. And so we talked about the sit-ins quite a lot um, as students at A&T. And so when I arrived, in grad school at OSU, I didn't really want to talk. I wanted to do something completely different. I didn't want to talk about student activism. That wasn't really on my radar. Uh, oh. But it was It was one of my professors, Dr. William Nelson Jr., uh, who has since passed along, but he was a, a titan in, in the field of Black political science, uh, a legend uh, within the field of Black political science. And it was Dr. Nelson who strongly encouraged me to take a second look um, to, to not shun the idea of examining um, the significance and the power of HBCUs and what they have contributed uh, in the long narrative of, of the Black experience. Uh, and so he, he strongly encouraged me to do that. And so I did. And I took a class called The History of Black Education um, at, at Ohio State, uh, taught by the incredible and wonderful Dr. Beverly Gordon. And um, it was in that class that I truly began to see that wow, there were a lot of missing pages as it related to the legacy of HBCUs. And so that's, I think that's one of the things that you, you do as, 
as a graduate student is that you become a lot more intimately familiar with the canon, right? As you begin to read, you know, all of these authors and these scholars and you, you learn more intensely about um, what other scholars have said, but you also in doing that as part of the training is that you learn what has not been said, right? And so um, it was in that class that I really began to see that, yeah, the field truly was wide open uh, as it related to the legacy of these institutions. And so um, I started off and, you know, I, I did a master's thesis on, uh, and I, I did my, 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 my graduate studies in Black studies, uh, my graduate degree rather in Black studies. Then I moved over to uh, the, the PhD in history. Uh, so my master's thesis was a look at North Carolina anti-state university, and I lose I used a sociological model to to examine the the generation of activism that existed on that campus. Uh, and mm-hmm. so when I moved over to to the history department, um, you know, it was there that my my academic advisor, Dr. Hassan Jeffries, um, he was the one who encouraged me to continue in that conversation on HBCUs. And so I decided to do a comparative study of of, of Jackson State and Tougaloo College. Uh, and in that study is where this book, that dissertation is where this book really began to, to, to come to life. Um, so there I was as a young graduate student um, going down to Mississippi <laughs> to, to go do research. Uh, and, and that in itself was daunting. You know, I'm, I'm from North Carolina, born and raised in the South, but I had never been to Mississippi. And, and Mississippi still has that kind of allure, that mystique of, Mm-hmm. of uh of you know of, of racism uh, you know even my mom who's born and raised in, in North Carolina she was like be careful you know when you go down to Mississippi because you know it's, it's Mississippi right and so you know I arrived but I found incredibly wonderful people who helped shape that that study and I was able to interview a lot of uh major hitters uh, um heavy hitters uh, within the movement who really kind of helped me understand that I was on the right track in posing some of the questions that I was posing about the legacy of, of HBCUs. And so when I finished that dissertation in 2006, uh, it was Dr. Hassan Jeffries who encouraged me. He said, look, you know what? The dissertation was great, but what we really need is a broader view, a broader understanding, a broader study of Black colleges themselves. And, and so I thought about it for about a month or so. And I said, you know what, I think he's right. And and I decided to to, to launch. And, and that's where the book really kind of began. So I decided I'm, I was going to keep Jackson State and Tougaloo within that study, but I wanted to expand it massively. And I added five other institutions um, to that conversation. And and that's where the beginning of the book really, really started. Right. Well, we we definitely want to know more about more about that and your the experiences that you had when doing the research and writing for this book. Um, it's clear that you traveled to so many university archives. Uh, you're you're moving through student newspapers, posters, editorials, photographs. Uh, the book has all of these things in them. You draw on all of these sources. Um, can you tell us about some of your favorite sources or maybe some of your favorite interviews that you had um, or other research encounters uh, that you had when uh, when uh, creating this this uh, manuscript? Right. Well, well, again, I actually want to go back to the course that I just identified, talking about the history of black education course that I took at Ohio State. And so it was there when, again, historiography 
you know, we read, you know, incredible scholars who had written on, on these topics before. But but one of the things that you're really kind of trained to do as a young graduate student, and I still carry this training with me to this very day, when I open up a book, one of the first things that I want to do is I want to look at the footnotes. Right? I, I want to mm-hmm. look at the end notes. I want to see what sources the historian consulted in pulling together this argument. And one of the, the missing components that I found um, in looking at a lot of previous scholarship on HBCUs was that no one had ever really, in a very seriously and exhaustive way, examined Black college newspapers, which I found to be really kind of striking because I think that one of the best barometers of really gauging the political and social climate of an institution, particularly an institution of higher education, is looking at the student newspapers. And so I knew that that I wanted that to be a, a major source. And I felt as though I could fill in some serious gaps. Um, because what do, what do student newspapers really tell us? They tell us really who the students are, again, what the campus climate is, um, who's coming to campus in terms of visitors. Um, it also provides a platform and a space for students to work out their angst and their frustrations with whatever they're experiencing, whether that's campus issues or whether that's broader issues such as white supremacy and Jim Crow in America. Uh, And sure enough, you know, when you open up the the black college newspapers, which are incredible sources, it was a goldmine. It was a goldmine of evidence which showed, again, what students were being exposed to. Uh, again, their political, their, their politicization and, and, and how their ideas were really kind of coming to shape. And again, these, these papers, dated back, going back to, to the 19th century. You know, I was able to find newspapers which documented what students were thinking and, and what they were being exposed to. And, that, and of course, that goes all the way up to the, uh, um, uh, to, to, the, to the late 20th century. And of course, even still today, you could find student newspapers really kind of playing this role. Um, but so student newspapers were a large part of it, but also the, the oral interviews um, that I was able to conduct. Of course, the book is a longitudinal study, and it goes back to to the beginnings of the, the ICY, the Institute for Colored Youth. Um, so it wasn't really until I got up to um, to my chapter on on Bennett that I was finally able to find people who were actually still living um, that I could mm-hmm. talk to. Uh, and in mm-hmm. fact, that, that Bennett chapter, um, which is the third chapter in the book, I opened up with an interview. Um, there was a woman by the name of Hattie Bailey, and I'll never forget um, I was a on fellowship at Duke University in 2013, uh, and Bennett was the, the the last chapter that I had not really begun work on. And I said, you know what, this is going to be a shot in the dark. But I was looking through the student newspapers, and I found this incredible story of this woman by the name of Hattie Bailey, who was a student at Bennett, who had attended all of these radicalized conferences, and she was the SGA president. And uh, I said, you know, as a shot in the dark, I'm just going to see if this this woman is still living. And, and sure enough. She was. And I found her in Philadelphia and I called her and I interviewed her and I'm at my desk at Duke University. I'll never forget. And again, this is is translated within the text. Uh, You know, I was asking her about Bennett and, you know, I told her who I was and what I was trying to do. And uh, it hadn't been, you know, three minutes into the conversation before she just hauled off and said, you know what, I learned how to speak at Bennett. And, And I was blown away by that because clearly this woman wasn't telling me that that she learned that she she got to Bennett and she couldn't mm-hmm. talk, right? You know, what she was telling me is that she found her voice, right? She found her sense of power, that she had people who invested in her and, and trained her and she was emboldened by that and empowered by that. And I said, yes, this is exactly what 
what I'm looking for, this type of, of, of testimony. And, and sure enough, she provided that. And, and that's where the story um, of Hattie Bailey really begins uh, in that chapter uh, by opening up with that interview that I did. And, and there were a number of other people, uh, uh, the Alabama State chapter, and specifically the, the, Miss, the Jackson State University chapter. I was able to, to interview folks and, and talk to people who confirmed that indeed these institutions had been and still are shelters in a time of storm. Um, that empowered generations of young Black people to find their voices. Uh, and so I was just really, I mean, the whole research process was, uh, it was fulfilling. It was certainly uh, laborious. <laughs> uh, it was a challenge going to, to HBC archives, which are often still extremely underfunded, uh, undersupported, um, that lack basic resources. But within these spaces are a treasure trove of of materials and primary sources, which again, continue to confirm that black colleges were some of the most important uh, launching points for, for justice and freedom for black people within this country. Absolutely. And uh, when you were, when you were reflecting on uh, just the newspapers that, that you found, um, I, it reminded me of um, it reminded me of a interview that I did recently with Dr. Kim Gallen, um, about her new book, Pleasure in the News. And um, she talks about Black uh, public spheres, Black sexual publics. But mm-hmm. I see uh, I see this kind of like Black student public parallel um, happening uh, in your work, especially the ways that student newspapers create a, uh, a localized kind of public. And you have, you have a uh, you have other words to, to discuss that. So I want to get to talking about um, uh, just anchoring our, our understanding and our discussion of your book today on uh, these two fundamental mechanisms that you use to consider the interplay between Black colleges and Black liberation traditions over the long array. Can you explain for us how the second curriculum and the Black college communitas made Black colleges ontological sites where race men and race women came into being and went on to lead intergenerational struggles for Black liberation? Absolutely. First, I want to back up and talk about one of my my influences as it related to interpreting um, student voice within newspapers. I read Kadada Williams' book. Um, They they left great marks on me, which is a phenomenal book, a very inspirational book to me personally, in terms of how she approached her scholarship. But she talks about writing as a form of protest and the importance of that, particularly in overtly violent spaces, Black folks using their voices um, and, and, and testimony, right? Whether that be through through newspaper articles, whether that be through testimony to, to court officials, whether that be through letter writing campaigns, that in itself was an act of, of protest. And so, again, opening up these student newspapers and finding young Black college students from the nadir all the way up to the new Negro era into the the early civil rights movement, using that space um, as a form, as a way of not just finding their voice, like Hattie Bailey said, but, but using that voice for the, to, to call for the liberation of black people. And I found an abundance of evidence um, supporting that. And so, you know, one of the things that you do as, as a young scholar 
um, when you're starting off. And I, I imagine even seasoned scholars continue to do this, that you begin to kind of siphon out your work, right? You, you start dropping samples, <laughs> if you will. I'm take a hip hop <laughs> phrase. You, you drop a sample on on people, right? I mean, you, 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 you want to get feedback. And so I'll never forget um, allowing one of my colleagues um, to take a look at some of my earlier drafts. And he said, you know what? You should really check out uh, Victor Turner. Victor Turner was a cultural anthropologist um, who wrote a lot about um, this idea of communitas. And, mm-hmm. and, and that concept of communitas simply gave me another way to think about and describe space. Right? And what I mean by that is this. Um, when you look at the, the long history of Black institutions or Black colleges, when you look at the legacy of the Institute for Colored Youth, founded in 1837 in Philadelphia, um, what becomes abundantly clear is that from the very beginning, um, these institutions were designed to be radically different from Johns Hopkins. They were radically different from the Harvards and the Yales, no offense, Amanda. They were radically different from, from yeah. institutions which were propped up by white supremacy, who institutions that were deeply rooted, not just within the history of slavery in America, but also deeply rooted in, in producing and promoting concepts and ideas of white supremacy. Uh, but from the very beginning, you see at the ICY, these spaces were going to be radically different and they were going to shape young men and women to, much like Hattie Bailey, to find their voice, but also how to use that to, again, call for the deconstruction of white supremacy, um, to call for an end to Jim Crow, to call for uh, uh, the creation of civil and human rights um, for black folks in this America and in America. So um, and so I use this idea of communitas to really and, and Victor Turner and I really kind of appropriate a lot of his ideas and kind of you know, borrow some of his concepts, uh, you know, the, his, his ideas have certainly faced a lot of criticism, but I wanted to, to use the idea of describing space in a very distinct way, uh, a space where relationship mattered, um, where, mm-hmm. um, where, where, where the idea of, of rights of passage mattered, uh, and more importantly, how that was connected to uh, um, and created a linked sense of fate with the masses, uh, mm-hmm. And so, again, beginning in 1837 in Philadelphia, you see young black students um, who have um, the privilege of attending uh, uh, college, something which, of course, the masses did not, um, finding their voice and using their voice to call for the 15th Amendment, to call for the 14th Amendment, uh, to call for uh, uh, the protection of civil rights for, for Black folks. Uh, and so it was very clear from the beginning that this was going to be a radically different space. Uh, and so the, the other side of that is that I also want to talk about, I wanted to talk about the, the, the energy within that space and how the curriculum was different. And so this kind of, I, I found this concept um, within my dissertation, I was just kind of looking for a way to describe um, what these students were being exposed to uh, and to identify what these students were being, were being exposed to. And clearly, higher education, no matter where you are, um, you know, th- especially going back to, to the late 19th, early 20th century, students were studying Latin. They were studying history. They were studying Greek. They were studying sciences, the hard sciences. Uh, and they did that. 
at, at the ICY. They did that at Harvard. Again, they did that at, at, at Northwestern. They were doing it at all institutions of higher learning. But I also found that within HBCUs, there was a second curriculum, um, which was pervasive, which saturated the environment. And, and that curriculum was composed of what I argue are, are three major components, race consciousness, cultural nationalism, and idealism. Um, there's this great quote which James Weldon Johnson gives, and I actually use this in the book, where he talks about the fact that when he arrived at Morehouse College uh, in Atlanta, um, and he says this in his memoirs, he says, look, the, the the academic curriculum at Morehouse was no different. And in fact, he specifically quotes Yale. Again, no offense, Amanda. <laughs> but he says, <laughs> he says that, hey, that the, the, the curriculum at, at Morehouse was the same curriculum as, as that was found in these old New England schools. Mm-hmm. But the difference was, and this is what he says in the book, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is almost a direct quote, was that we talked about and dealt with race, right? That race was the, the subject of everything. It was the subject of, of, of essays on campus. It was the subject of conversations within dorm rooms. Like everything centered around race, all right. And when I say race, I mean a, a counter narrative. Right. Again, white supremacy was was raging throughout the country in the night, late 19th and, and early 20th centuries. And it defined all aspects of American life. But within HBCUs, you found this very powerful counter narrative, which mm-hmm. someone like Carter G. Woodson is later going to come in and he's going to tap into that. And in doing so, um, the, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History is really going to blossom on these campuses, right? Because Carter G. Woodson understood that race consciousness could thrive within these spaces and within these environments. And so, uh, and that was important, right? Again, I talk about the idea of a shelter in a time of storm, the idea of shielding young Black people from the very worst effects of white supremacy, which at the same time were teaching Black youth that they were pickaninnies and that they were inferior and that they had no culture. But within a, a shelter in a time of storm, within the spaces of, of HBCUs, Black youth were provided a very powerful counter-narrative. So race consciousness was a very important part of, of, of what was going on within these institutions. And then I talk about the idea and the concept of cultural nationalism. Um, the idea that, and, and, and when I say cultural nationalism, what I mean by that is the idea of, of carving out a space within a space, carving out a, a, an environment where the promotion and the support of Black institutions and Black organizations can thrive, right? You know, I talk about the idea of race men and race women emerging who were, who fully were fully invested in that idea, who were fully invested in that concept of, of supporting and promoting Black institutions, Black organizations, uh, um, Black civic groups, because they embrace that that racial responsibility. So this is what I mean when I talk about the sense of, of cultural nationalism. And then the last part of that, and again, this was all you know, something that kind of just came to me as a young graduate student working on my dissertation, which is where I first mentioned the idea and the concept of a second curriculum. And the third component is idealism. When I look within the student newspapers, whether it's the blue and white flash of Jackson State University or whether it's the the freshmore of Alabama State University, these two words continue to pop up over and over and over again, democracy and citizenship democracy and citizenship. I mean, students were being literally drilled in those concepts. Right? I mean, you literally had generations of young Black kids who were little constitutionalists, right? I mean, they mm-hmm. understood what their rights were because they studied democracy and citizenship, which, of course, struck me 
is incredibly ironic because democracy and citizenship were two of the things that black folks were denied on a daily basis. But yet here they are studying these ideas of democracy and citizenship, and it created an incredibly powerful um, cadre of young black folks um, emerging from these institutions from generation to generation who demanded their rights who, who were, were trained to, to, again, deconstruct white supremacy and to deconstruct Jim Crow in whatever way they could, uh, whether that was through the students that they taught. Uh, as, you know, Black colleges were founded for two major professions, right, ministers and, and teachers. Uh, and, and so, you know, generations of these young Black kids were, were, were being trained by the teachers of, of, of these uh who, who were products of these institutions. And it played a critical role in, in shaping their identity. Um, there's this great quote, and I, I'll wrap this comment up here, but there's this great quote um, from Ezell Blair. I actually did this uh, interview with Ezell Blair. We talked about oral history. I interviewed Ezell Blair in 1999 for my master's thesis. And for those who are not familiar with that name, Ezell Blair, also now he refers to himself as Jabril Kazan, was one of the anti four. This is one of the, the young men who sat down on in February 1st, 1960. And I'll never forget. And again, I'm a young graduate student when I'm interviewing him, but it was Ezell Blair who told me that, look, you know, when I was a student, and he's talked about his segregated school system in, in Greensboro. But he said, look, that, that we were taught by teachers, teachers who told us that we were going to have a role, that we were going to have a purpose, that we were going to play a critical role in deconstructing, again, white supremacy and Jim Crow, and that we had to keep our hands on the freedom plow. And again, I'm paraphrasing there. But then he went on to say in that same interview, and this is, again, one of those kind of wow moments for me as a young graduate student. He says, this is before Rosa Parks came along. This is before Dr. King came along. This is what I was taught in my segregated school system in Greensboro. That's a direct quote from him. And, I, and again, so that that one that led me to the path of, of again, as a young graduate student saying, well, wow, who are these teachers? Right? You know, and, and where were they being trained? And, 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 and what were they exposed to? And I hope that the book expounds upon the work of people like Vanessa Siddle Walker, uh, who's a good friend and incredible scholar out of Emory. It expounds upon the work of people like James Anderson. Um, so many scholars who have uh, who have dedicated their lives to talking about the history of, of Black education. I hope that this book is the next step in that in identifying exactly who these teachers were uh, and what they were exposed to and how they utilized their space to advance the freedom dreams of Black people. And, and, and I think that's what Ezell Blair, Jabril Kazan's comments really kind of illustrate is that there was important work that was going on by HBCU graduates as they worked as teachers um, and attempted to try to blunt the force of, of, of white supremacy and to embolden and empower Black youth to see themselves as very powerful cultural and political change agents in America. So, so, so powerful. Um, and just, uh, it's just so you're, the your the conceptual frameworks that you have created are so brilliant because they capture exactly that the radical educational praxis that's at work um, at right. these black colleges. Um, one thing that struck me uh, was uh, how you grapple with space, place, and campus environment in the book, mm -hmm. specifically with your reference to black colleges as passageways between black neighborhoods and black schools. And I just wonder if you could tell us more about, about how you think about that relationship. 
Yeah, you know, I, I was, <laughs> again, there's so many people who have helped shape and influence um, th- this project, um, many of whom maybe didn't even realize at the time that they were really doing that. But I, I'll never forget being in conversation with um, my good friend, Wesley Hogan, who wrote an incredible book on, on SNCC and who is now the, the director of, of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. She and and um, Chandra Gwynn, I believe was her name. She used to be the director of the Mary Lou Williams Center at Duke University. I was on fellowship at Duke and we were all in conversation and we were talking about my project. And it was Chandra who um, said, you know, there's really, she gave me the, the phrase link sense of fate with the masses, right? And, and and she said, you know, there's really kind of this linked sense of fate that we're all in this together, right? That we rise and we fall together. And, and that truly was um, a mindset uh, of, of so many of these Black folks, right? Um, Charles Payne, who's another one of, uh, of the folks who influenced me, his incredible um, study, uh, I've Got the Light of Freedom, where he talks about the legacy of SNCC. When you look at that generation of, of SNCC activists who arrive in the belly of the beast in Mississippi to begin their, their work, uh, uh, you know, they understood the relationship, right, that existed. The, so I talk, when you talk about the idea of passageways, right, you know, these are folks who are coming from Howard and coming from Morehouse mm-hmm. and coming from Fisk and coming from these HBCUs. But when they arrive in the Delta of Mississippi, they see a kindred linkage there, right, with, with, with the Black folks that they're engaging in. And so that's not foreign to them. Right. The sights, the sounds, the smells of the black community, they're able to leave the the black ivies of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. To leave these elite positions and to reintegrate themselves into the Mississippi Delta and form an immediate bond, an immediate connection. You think of someone like Stokely Carmichael, right, arriving into the Delta of, of Mississippi and, and forming these incredible bonds with people there and forming these incredible bonds with people in Lowndes County, Alabama. Uh, and that was because of, again, relationship. That was because of these passageways. Generations of young Black folks had also found their way out of uh, of the hinterlands of, of the Deep South, and they too had arrived on campuses like Alcorn and campuses like Alabama State and campuses like Russ College and all these HBCUs throughout the South. And so, you know, I, we we love to talk about the idea of uh, respectability politics and, and black elitism and classism, and certainly those things are real, and certainly those things have informed the experiences of black people in this country. But let's remember. The HBCUs have always represented a space for and provided a space for first generation college students to arrive. People who were, were carved from poverty, right? People who were produced from, from, from the very worst political, social, economic conditions of America. Their sons, their daughters found their way to these institutions and many of them returned back to these spaces that produced them. And they came with their degrees, they came with 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 with, with uh, their teaching positions and their positions as, as ministers, but they also came with the sense of, we have to serve the masses, right? There's a connection here, there's a, a mission here that we have to engage in a sense of uplift, not an uplift in the sense of we have to promote ourselves or we're interested in our own personal brand, but we're interested in the mission of service. Barbara Ransby talks about this in her brilliant book on Ella Baker, 
mm-hmm. where Ella Baker, you know, says, look, had it not been for the training I got at Shaw, right, as a student at Shaw University, which is an HBCU, of course, located in Raleigh, North Carolina, the first uh, uh, institution of higher learning in the Deep South, as far as HBCUs are concerned to be, to be created. Uh, she's a product of Shaw. She says it was at Shaw that I learned the mission of service. Howard Thurman says it was at Morehouse that I learned the mission of service. Mm-hmm. And so these passageways um, where Black folks are able to, 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 to go in and out um, through the Black community into these institutions, um, they're so critically important. Uh, and, and again, it shows a linked sense of fate um, that so many of the, these young Black students had um, with the masses. And again, as I said before, this does not dismiss the legacy of elitism and colorism and and, and classism that existed within uh, um, um, the experience of Black Americans. Uh, but one of the things that I, I knew I wanted to do with this book is said, look, I said, hey, those stories have been told, right? We've we've read a lot about classism and elitism and, mm-hmm. and, and all of the, the respectability politics. But what we haven't really been exposed to is again the legacy of these a powerful legacy of these institutions and how they carved very important spaces um, to empower Black youth and how those Black youth returned to these communities with a sense of spirit and with a sense and a spirit of, of service and a dedication to the Black masses. Right, right, indeed. It's a it's like reading. Uh, I like your. Uh, your kind of dual take on on uplift, like reading a new valence of uplift as uplift as being a community uh, a community centered uh, praxis. So uh, that's truly fascinating. Um, the beginning of the book locates uh, the practice of the second curriculum in the Institute for uh, the Institute of Colored Youth, the I. The ICY. Uh, how do you see this institution as becoming a seedbed for race consciousness, both before the Civil War and as a protector of um, the Fifteenth Amendment during Reconstruction? Well, you know, in a in a, in a slightly humorous way, um, that chapter, is, of course, opens up the book. Um, there's this continuing argument <laughs> between uh, the, these these trio of institutions, uh, Cheney State University, Lincoln University, uh, and Wilberforce University. All three of them are HBCUs. Um, Lincoln and, and Cheney, of course, located uh, in in, uh, in Pennsylvania, and Wilberforce located in, in Ohio. But all three of them make the claim to be the first Black college. Uh, all three of them make that same claim. Uh, Cheney says that we were founded in 1837. Lincoln says, hey, we were founded in 1854 or 56. Uh, the, the date escapes me. Uh, but, you know, we we were the first degree granting institution, right? Like, Cheney, you weren't giving out degrees. We were the first one to do that. And so, therefore, we're the first HBCU. And then Wilberforce comes and says, well, that, that might be true, Lincoln, but you were run by white folks. Right? Lincoln was literally founded by and controlled by white trustees and white faculty. Uh, and Wilberforce, of course, is founded by the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And so they make the claim that, that we're the first HBCU, the real historically black college and university. So it's a, a really fascinating argument. And then again, somewhat of a humorous argument because it's all, you know, in fun uh, as they kind of jostle back and forth. But when I when I read the the early history of the ICY, uh, the Institute for Color Youth, which later on became Cheney, uh, I knew that I wanted to open up my story there. 
Um, when I when I was when I was exposed to some of the earlier scholarship that had been written on on the ICY, and I learned about people like Octavius Cato and Ebenezer Bassett mm-hmm. and Fanny Jackson Coppin, I said these are the type of folks that that really best uh, represent and illustrate why these institutions were so important. And from the very beginning, you find again this is 1837. And, you know, when you look at what's going on in Philadelphia in 1837, you know, we're in the midst of the antebellum era. but We're also in the midst of sort of a Jacksonian era, right, where Andrew Jackson, who is arguably one of the most white supremacists, white nationalist presidents who ever existed. Well, now we have a, a challenger to that, right, Donald Trump. <laughs> but, but, I mean, you know, Jackson was just nakedly in a very raw way, appealing to white nationalism and emboldened white people throughout the country uh, in the ideas of white supremacy. And so the North was an extremely hostile space, right? Again, we kind of, you know, we should debunk this idea that black folks were escaping to some sort of paradise. And when they arrived in places like Philadelphia and New York and Boston, that they experienced some sort of uh, grand freedom. Indeed, the struggle was still continued. And they were fighting for, one, to remain free, Right. Um, to, to not be uh, caught up and kidnapped and sold back into slavery. But also they were fighting for their their civil and human rights, because we find it, uh, it also kind of parallels this. We're entering into the golden age of, of immigration and you see Irish immigrants arriving throughout the country. And, 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 and they, too, embraced the ideas of white supremacy and it created a very hostile environment for black people living in places like New York and Boston, Philadelphia and, and throughout New England and other areas. And so, um, you know, again, shelter in a time of storm. Right. It, what was cl- very clear is that the ICY, the Institute for Colored Youth, was going to represent a space, simply one where we can send black folks and, and send black youth and they can be protected. Right. They, they can be empowered. Uh, in, in an environment where, I mean, think about also in the 1830s, 1840s, minstrel shows are really becoming becoming popular in America. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, they are trafficking in the ideas of racial stereotypes. They are promoting the ideas and concepts, again, of, of the, the coon and the sambo. And so not only did white Americans believe that black folks were inferior, um, they thought that the idea of, of even educating black folks was ridiculous. This is where we get the Zip Coon character emerging, right? You know, that you know, in spite of you know how far and how much we try to educate these people, they'll never be able to assimilate. They'll never be able to become, to become integrated into American society. And so, the ICY being founded in 1837 and moving into uh, the antebellum era, it became a very important space, again, not just for educating young black folks, but also empowering them. Uh, and it was there that I found stories of people like Jacob White Jr. and and um, Octavius Cattle, who not only were students at these institutions, but ultimately became leaders and teachers themselves uh, within these institutions. And they clearly and very quickly embrace the idea of racial uplift, of using their voices to call for, again, the deconstruction of white supremacy. Um, they, they became extremely active in the Pennsylvania Equal Rights League, which is one of the earlier civil rights organizations in America, which was part of the National Equal Rights League. Ebenezer Bassett was a member who was the principal of the school, was a member. And then he's using his students to write and draft petitions 
which are being read on the floor of Congress, petitions which called for a 14th Amendment, petitions which called for a 15th Amendment, a suffrage for African-American men. Um, so again, it's very clear from the outset that these institutions were going to serve as a catalyst, as a seedbed for activism uh, in America. And the ICY became the perfect example, the perfect illustration of that. Uh, and so I knew I wanted to start my story there. And uh, and, and I think it was a very powerful story to tell. Octavius Cattle, again, for those who have read the book or even for those who are already familiar with the, the importance of, of Octavius Cattle as, as a uh, as a as an early civil rights activist, you know, this is a man who was assassinated in the streets of, of Philadelphia uh, because of his involvement in promoting um, um, suffrage for, for, for black people. So uh, it's very clear from the beginning that, that black colleges were going to produce these type of women, these type of men who use their voices to call for black liberation. And that was something that white America was not comfortable with. Um, so once you can certainly argue then you could you could argue now, too. And this is one of the things I appreciate about the book is that it, it actually goes all the way. It goes all the way back to the antebellum period to start considering uh, these these questions. Um, let's move next to Tougaloo College in Mississippi. Um, and you uh, analyze uh, uh, you analyze how this place became a place of refuge um, during uh, the period that Rayford Logan has termed the nadir of race relations in the United States. Um, how should we appreciate the influence of the social gospel and some things that we've already discussed, moral uplift and cultural nationalism, um, as students uh, 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 debated these concepts on campus as they were uh, creating and, and living in this, in this enclave? You know, one of the things that I think was so unique about Tougaloo, um, one, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Tougaloo was one of the schools that I started off in my dissertation. I did a comparative study of Jackson State and Tougaloo. And so I knew I wanted to keep those two institutions within within the uh, within the narrative, mm-hmm. uh, within the main within the manuscript. Uh, but that chapter on Tougaloo is probably, I would dare say, eighty five percent re complete. It's a complete rewrite. <laughs> right, because I found these new sources, uh, um, new voices, uh, and, and a new angle that I really wanted to get at with Tougaloo, which was different from my dissertation. Um, and so, one of the fascinating things about Tougaloo, and again, I think this really challenged me to think very critically about how I was describing communitas and how I was describing set curriculum, is that much like with Lincoln, as I just finished describing in Philadelphia. Tougaloo was, at, at the outset, was almost completely controlled by white folks. Um, white folks who carried with them a very paternalistic uh, idea and concept of how black folks should be engaged. Uh, uh, white folks who themselves uh, embraced certain concepts of white supremacy. Uh, but yet I found, again, turning to the student newspapers, right? And this is where I think space becomes so critically important. And you, you use the word and I use the word in my book describing interstitial space, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what we mean by that, of course, clearly is a space within a space, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you're able to carve out these lower levels of space that you see the institution, you see the college, but what happens when a teacher closes their door to the classroom? Mm-hmm. That in itself becomes another space. Yeah. What happens when students are able to 
work out their angst and frustrations with white supremacy within a student newspaper. That in itself becomes space, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what happens when, you know, the, these literary societies, which uh, begin to pop up on all of these uh, institutions, particularly in the, in the latter part of the 19th century, they begin to pop up and they're, they're exposing students to the works of Paul Lawrence Dunbar and and Phyllis Wheatley and all these early writers, you know, that in itself becomes a space, right? And, and so what I found is that in spite of the fact that you have levels of paternalism and levels of, 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 of elitism and white supremacy that exist even on these campuses, Black students were able to carve out this interstitial space and still begin to engage in dialogue and discussion about the future of the race, Right? Mm-hmm. And, and what that looked like. Uh, and, and so you're right. I and mean, we talk about the brilliance of, of Rayford Logan and, and giving us the, this, this term and the way in which we describe the late 19th, early 20th century, which, which was fraught with racial violence as the nadir, right? The lowest point in race relations. And again, there were few places throughout the country that were worse than, than Mississippi. And, and so you, you see Black youth debating in Mississippi at Tougaloo, literally debating what the hell are we going to do, <laughs> right? And and again, that's a microcosm because Black folks throughout the country were having that same conversation right. throughout the late nineteenth century. Like, what do we do? How do we approach this? You know, and and, and in the same and one of the, the fascinating arguments that I saw began to to pop up and even evolving in, in a place like Tougaloo is this idea of cultural. Now we talk about cultural nationalism. This idea of of should we should we stay or should we go? Right, you know, migration begins mm-hmm. to to enter into the conversation, and Black folks are talking about going to Liberia. Black folks are going to the Caribbean. Black folks are talking about going out to Kansas, or you know, we need to get the hell out of here, right? And, and so, interestingly enough, at the outset, uh, there's this argument being advanced in the student newspaper at Tougaloo of of Black folks saying, "Look, you know, we should stay." Um, that the idea of immigration is something which is uh, 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 we should uh, reject, that we should jettison, that we should not embrace that at all. And by the time you reach the 1890s, there's this article that emerges where the students are like, "No, we should leave." <laughs> that 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 we and by leave again, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should go to Liberia, but we should work more aggressively to carving out these critical. Black spaces. And again, that's right in line with what Booker T. Washington is arguing, right? And, and you know, we can look at Booker T. Washington and some of his controversial comments, but, but Black people in the Deep South embraced the idea of providing and creating a space which was free of white racism, which was free of white people in general. This is where we get the idea of Mound Bayou, right? This all-Black city being created in the, in the Delta, uh, and, and there were a number of other all-Black cities that were emerging during this time period. And so increasingly now, as you reach the 1890s, and you see this conversation emerging at Tougaloo, you see young Black students saying, yes, it is time for us to more uh, um, uh, aggressively embrace the idea of cultural nationalism and carving out spaces that are meant for uh, uh, Black folks and will protect Black folks and will will, will shelter us from, from the very worst of a white supremacist society. And again, this is Mississippi in the 1890s. And, and you know, it didn't get any worse in terms of, of, of racial violence, in terms of racism, in terms of Jim Crow uh, being aggressively enforced um, than Mississippi during the nadir. And so it was interesting to see how that, that argument 
really kind of evolved in the pages of, of Tougaloo, the student newspaper. You see Black college students debating that, but you also see them being empowered, right? You also see them finding their voice on these issues um, and, and in doing so, thinking more uh, um, critically about not just the future of themselves, but the future of the race in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, let's let's turn next to um, Bennett College. Um, and can you tell us about how um, encounters there um, and initiatives led by students cultivated young women's race and perhaps even intersectional um, consciousness through maybe the different tactics, maybe you could tell us about the different ways that they, um, that they expressed uh, uh, or, or found their voice on campus um, through theater boycott, radio shows, and obviously the newspaper journalism. Um, and then how did the administration also nurture their actions? Yeah. Um, you know, interesting story about th- that chapter. As I said before, Bennett was the last chapter um for me to to write. When I arrived at Duke on Fellowship in 2013, it was the, the, the only chapter that hadn't been written at all. And, and so, in fact, that chapter was originally going to be a chapter on Howard University during the New Negro era. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'll never forget, have, I was having lunch with one of my um, colleagues who was also on Fellowship at Duke, um, Yvonne. And Yvonne was um, actually a, a professor at, at Bennett. Uh, and she said, you know what? And we just kind of casually talking. She says, and we were talking about this chapter that I was working on. She says, everybody talks about Howard. Like, nobody ever talks about Bennett. <laughs> and it kind of paused me in my tracks. And I said, you know what? You're right. And I said, you know what? This is a golden opportunity um, for me to um, set aside this, this idea. Because I was all ready. I was all geared up to begin work on tackling and discussing the legacy of Howard during the New Negro era. But I said, this is a great opportunity for me to center the legacy of black women in America and in the midst of this new Negro period and to talk about how black colleges were shaping them specifically um, in this environment. And so Bennett became uh, the, the not, not only was it the last chapter that I wrote in the book, uh, even though it's chapter three, <laughs> but it was the last one that I actually wrote. Uh, but it also became one of my favorite chapters. Um, mm-hmm. And it produced, and it went on to win the RDW Connor Award, produced by the, uh, the North Carolina Historical Review. It's the best article uh, for that year. Portions of that that chapter um, was written in that. But but I think what I found most powerful about that was the legacy and the relationship between students and administrators. Um, Bennett becomes a, a, a single-sex institution in 1926. And in that same year, um, they hire a guy by the name of David Dallas Jones, uh, who, oddly enough, is, is, is the, uh, um, grand, um, uh, the grandfather of, of many people know Martha uh, Jones, who, of course, just wrote Vanguard, um, talking about the legacy of Black women in, in politics. Um, but this is her grandfather, right? And so, um, you know, David Dallas Jones arrives on campus and he is an unquestionable race man. And, and he brings those politics with him. And he literally, I mean, it infuses the campus with this sense of race consciousness and how black women can continue to find their voices uh, within the struggle. And so from the very beginning, again, you open up those student newspapers and there's just powerful evidence of as black folks are entering into the new Negro era, of the 1920s and late 19 and early 1930s, um, 
Black women also finding, in a very radical way, finding their voices, which are tinged with militancy, um, which are tinged um, with a sense of 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 of, of uh, alert, uh, being alert about the the environment around them, and and uh, being determined um, to again deconstruct Jim Crow where they find it. And out of this, we end up seeing the boycott of 1937, where black women on that campus uh, ended up boycotting um, uh, and leading the boycott of of theaters in downtown Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, because they were uh, refusing to show black folks uh, in a more um, a progressive light uh, within within uh, the films of Hollywood, uh, and but you also see again black women begin to uh, assert themselves uh, and find their voices as it related to again Jim Crow. Uh, you see them writing articles about why white supremacy is is uh, is problematic, uh, of why it's again undemocratic, why it's why it, it denies citizenship, right? Democracy and citizenship, um, and, and again, it was just a powerful testimony. To, to how these institutions were shaping and speaking specifically to the concerns of, of Black women during the New Negro era. So uh, again, shout out to my, my former colleague at, at, at Duke who really was the person who said, look, you know what, we need to, to center um, Black women and we need to center the, the story of Bennett. Uh, and I'm so glad I, I made that decision and, and I included that chapter within the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I see, I see, uh, I see that, uh, um, happening throughout the the 1980s when I in my research look at the uh the Bennett the Bennett Banner mm-hmm. um newspaper student newspaper um I see uh you know the same uh types of uh critique political critiques always politically oriented critiques in the paper so it's a yeah. tradition that continues through you know the second half of the the century Absolutely. I mean, because well, the second half of the century, right? You have David Dallas Jones, and then his, his one of his proteges shows up, Willa Baker, a Willa Player, right? Who and she becomes the first uh, um, female president of Bennett College, but she is just as powerful and just as race centered as, as David Dallas Jones was. So again, there's a continuum there. Right. And, and there's a legacy of race consciousness, which informs both the first half of the 20th century and the second half of the century. And and Bennett remain, remains a major player. Uh, and, and again, for those who aren't familiar with, with Bennett College, it literally is located right across the street from North Carolina A&T. So if you've never been to Greensboro, you've got A&T on one side of the street and you have Bennett College on the other side of the street. And so these two institutions, it's, again, it's the power of black institutions. They they deeply uh, informed and deeply impacted um, the legacy of Black liberation within that city, um, and, and that energy flowed throughout the state, and, and and some would argue even throughout the country. So, as it relates to later on the legacy of the Black Power movement, Greensboro became one of those very important, uh, as Aldon Morris argues, one of those very important movement centers, uh, and and it was largely due to the presence of of Bennett College and, and North Carolina A and T. Right. And I think that you could have you probably could have wrote like seven different books within this yeah. within this one book, one for each institution, um, if if you wanted to. But we are on a tour. So right. let's, <laughs> let's go next to Alabama State University, um, where the students, faculty and administrators take part in the Montgomery boycott movement of 1955. Uh, can you tell us about uh, the the black college? Um, faculty and students influence on the upri- on these mass uprisings that reshaped America. 
You know, I, I say this about all of my chapters, but uh, Alabama State was one of my favorite chapters. <laughs> it really was. And, and just as a, a fan of history, right? I mean, when you're a graduate student, when you're, you know, a, a researcher and you begin a cut, I mean, you know, as, as one of my, my former um, uh, uh, advisors told me at Ohio State, when you're, you're really kind of a, like a detective on a cold case, Right? That's what that's what historical research really is. You're trying to bring these voices to life. And, you know, when I began to to peel back the story of Alabama State, uh, I really saw a powerful narrative of relationship between black administrators and black faculty. Um, here you have a scenario where Harper Council Trenholm, uh, who he himself is a Morehouse man, arrives at Alabama State University. Uh, he is great friends, as was his father, with Carter G. Woodson. Uh, he understands the importance of race consciousness. He understands the importance of the set curriculum. He understands the power of, of, of teacher education. Uh, and he begins to recruit, specifically and deliberately recruit, a team of people to this institution who will ultimately not just play a critical role in shaping young teachers, but also play a critical role in, in making Alabama State and Montgomery a center um, for, for, uh, uh, for the liberation of Black people in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're talking about people like Joanne Robinson, one of my favorite people in history. Joanne Robinson is a student at Fort Valley State. She, she, he's literally, she is literally recruited to come to, to teach at Alabama State University by Harper Council Trenholm. She arrives and she is a powerhouse of black radicalism. You have people like Mary Fair Burks. You have people like Thelma Glass. You have people like uh, uh, Rufus Lewis, who was the football coach, but also played a critical role in helping to, to politicize generations of, of young black folks. You have people like Lawrence Hayes, who actually begin that chapter telling his story. Right? You know, everybody talks about and celebrates the legacy of Black institutions, particularly when it comes to uh, um, highlighting the legacy of Black college bands. Where here you find Lawrence Hayes, who's the, the, the band conductor at Alabama State University, again, space, using the space as a Black college uh, band conductor um, to, uh, to, to create and shape one of the early Black freedom songs of the movement, right? The Alabama State Hornets did that. And, and again, it was because of the type of people who uh, uh, Harper Council Trenholm really recruited to these institutions to play that critical role. So, you know, I mentioned all these women, Joanne Robinson and Mary Fairbanks and, and, and uh, Thelma Glass. Um, they were all members of the Women's Political Council, which was an organization comprised of of black educators and black professors at Alabama State University. And it was the Women's Political Council. And I'm sure many of your listeners already know this, but it's the WPC that really it, it, it set the blueprint for what would become the Montgomery bus boycott. These women are friends with Rosa Parks. And so they know her personally. And so when she is, is, is assaulted and arrested on this bus, they spring into action and, and it plays a critical role. And, and, and that relationship filters down into their students. Uh, and it's just a very powerful testimony to, to how these institutions really kind of shape. Um, you know, when you have an environment where you're being taught by people like that, it yeah. matters. Right. I mean, imagine taking classes with Joanne Robinson. Imagine taking classes under Lawrence Reddick, right, who becomes one of the early advisors to Dr. King. Imagine taking classes with Mary Fairbirth. These are the type of race men and women 
who were educating this generation of, of young black folks in the 1950s and 1960s. And it, and it pays off in a, in, a very, in a very big way in terms of these institutions serving as catalysts um, for the modern civil rights movement. It sure, it sure does. Um, let's let's go next. Let's go back to Mississippi um, and talk about Jackson State University and uh, you see Jackson State as a bridge between the New Negro movement of the 1920s and 1930s, um, the, a bridge with the militant student protests of the 1960s. Um, how do you how do you uh, see this coming to life? And tell us about how you read figures like. Uh, James Meredith and Jacob Reddix and the SNCC activists who come to Jackson State. Yeah, you know, I mean, so just to back up just very quickly, I specifically and deliberately, and I talk about this in the acknowledgement, not the acknowledgements, but the introduction, I specifically and I deliberately um, targeted three institutions um, that I want to talk about in that area. Because again, going back to what I was saying about the missing pages, I found that those, talking about Black colleges from the new Negro era into World War II was one of the, the biggest gaps within our knowledge, right? There, there have been a number of studies. We certainly have talked about HBCUs and SNCC and, and, and Black activism in the 60s. There had even been a, some, some very good research that emerged about Black colleges in the new Negro era, not the new Negro era, but the, uh, yeah, the new Negro era in, in the early 19th century. Um, but the 30s and the 40s and the 50s were really kind of a blur. There, there was just not a lot that existed on these institutions during that time. So I specifically and deliberately targeted three institutions and I wanted those three institutions to represent the deep South. And so Alabama state, Jackson state, Mississippi and and Southern university, Louisiana, um, they became the basis for that, that core of institutions um, that I discuss in the book specifically during this, this type of timeline. And, and again, we're talking about Mississippi, the belly of the beast, um, and, and the idea of, of activism emerging and existing on these campus on these campuses in the fifties, in the forties, is something that you know we 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 don't really think about. Uh, in fact, I'll never forget uh, my good friend uh, Sandy Darity, uh, um, uh, mm-hmm. who's a professor at, at Duke University, William Sandy Darity, uh, uh, Darity um, listening to a presentation that I gave on, on Mississippi and Jackson state. And he kind of interrupted me in the midst of this conversation we're having <laughs> at, at a panel. And he says, wow, it kind of sounds like Jacob Reddix was this, this, this powerful race man, because in, in his early on in his career, Jacob Reddix is all about forming black co-ops, right? He's literally mm-hmm. W.E.B. Du Bois writes him a letter says, Hey, I, I read your information on black co-ops. This is in the midst of the great depression. And he says, I read your, your information, your research on black co-ops. This is a great idea. You know, one of the, the best compliments that I think was ever paid to me as a, as a young researcher um, was, um, in, in my dissertation defense, again, my, my, my dissertation was a comparative study of Tougaloo at Jackson State. Uh, but my one of my, my dear mentors and good friends and dis, uh, our dissertation committee members, Leslie Alexander, uh, Dr. Leslie Alexander, um, she, I'd never forget her reading um, the dissertation, coming into the, uh, into the defense and, and literally asking me the question, Jacob Reddix, I'm really confused about is he is he is he a friend or is he a foe? <laughs> right? like, I, she was like, "Where where where is this guy? Like, who is he?" And I think that that in itself that that was a compliment to me uh, because it shows the complexity of these institutions yeah. and of of these men and women who were literally fighting for survival 
uh, within this space. And Jacob Reddick's, th- those next two chapters of, of Jackson State and Southern University, I deal with two college administrators in, in Felton Clark at Southern and Jacob Reddick's at Jackson State, who were both no- seen as notorious mm-hmm. and even tyrannical in, in their approach to how they dealt with the emergence of student activism. Mm-hmm. But one of the more complicated stories is how prior to the 1960s, in the 40s and 50s, these men were seen as and thought of by their students as very important race men who helped lay a foundation and create a space where young Black activists and young Black students could really think their way through the the legacy of white supremacy and begin to use their voices to, again, call for its deconstruction. And so when you look at what's going on in Jackson State in the 40s and 50s, it really is kind of an explosive and radicalized militant space. The same thing with Southern University. And a lot of that was due to people like Jacob Reddick's. Now, again, when the 60s explode and you get this overt activism and and, and you get white racist state legislators picking up the phone and calling Jacob Reddick saying, hey, you better get those students in check. Otherwise, we're going to cut off funding and we're going to close these institutions. These men respond in, in very harsh and, and, and uh, difficult ways. And, and uh, it, it's one of the, the, the that, that's the story that a lot of people know about. Right. You know, a lot of people, you know, who, who, who studied the legacy of, of HBCUs, they often talk about how these institutions were run by these tyrannical men and, 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 and how they suppressed student activism. And it's a much more complicated story than that. And, and I think that you see, again, the interstitial space, you see people like Margaret Walker working at Jackson State. And, and her legacy, which is a very powerful legacy. Uh, uh, you see people uh, um, uh, uh, like, you know, the numerous other Black faculty who work within these institutions um, forming relationships, like you said, with with people like James Marriages and, and, and building their relationships with them and helping to guide those students through uh, some of the worst moments of the modern civil rights movement. So, yeah, I mean, Jackson State, it was, uh, it was a complicated story, but I think it's a very important story to tell in terms of um, troubling the waters of how we understand the legacy of these institutions as they bridge that gap, as you mentioned, from the New Negro period in World War II, entering now into the modern civil rights movement. It's a very fascinating transformation that these institutions uh, undergo. Yeah, and I think um, that definitely brings us to, and you mentioned it in, in your last response, uh, Southern University and the conservatism of the administrators, administrators there as well. Um, it seems that uh, uh, students were able, well, maybe you could just explain for us how students were able to uh, develop a radical consciousness, um, perhaps through the use of interstitial spaces, as you just mentioned, uh, despite some of these uh these uh, not not uh, things that were not facilitating uh, yeah. uh, the development of their protests. So uh, you know, again, I say this a lot, but Southern University was one of my favorite chapters to write <laughs> because <laughs> you know, again, it, it, it was just a very powerful narrative and a very powerful story. I'll never forget, as I mentioned before, you know, one of the things that you do as a young scholar, as as a young writer. This is my first book. I was sending out drafts. I was sending out samples of what I worked on um, to other people who were knowledgeable about, uh, specifically knowledgeable about these areas and these specific chapters. So for, uh, you know, for for the Jackson, uh, for the uh, Southern University chapter, one of the people that I sent it to 
um, was uh, a guy by the name of Dr. Mac Jones. Uh, and if you're not familiar with Dr. Mac Jones, Mac Jones is really one of the deans of the studying of black colleges. If you want to call it HBCU studies, he's one of the deans that he's been doing this for years. Uh, but he also was a former student at Southern University. And he was also expelled from Southern University, as were a number of other students during this era. And so I sent my chapter to, to Mac Jones. Mac Jones also, by the way, if you're not familiar with it, if you're, if you're into sports history um, or sports in general, uh, his son is Bomani Jones, the very popular mm-hmm. uh, ESPN commentator mm-hmm. uh, so and journalist. So I, I sent this chapter to, to Mac Jones, and if you notice in the opening of that chapter uh, on Southern University, I kind of I kind of needle Felton Clark a little bit. I kind of pick fun at him a little bit, largely because my former uh, graduate advisor, Dr. William Nelson, used to also teach at Southern University, and he used to regale me with stories of how he thought Felton Clark was an Uncle Tom. <laughs> you know, he hated working at Southern uh, and all of that. So I kind of opened up with that story of Felton Clark, you know, taking this, the, the entire campus in tow with him as he would go and pay tribute to his father. His father had also been president before Felton Clark was, uh, and he, he's buried on campus. And so every Founders Day, he would lead the campus out. And so anyway, getting back to Mac Jones, I send this chapter to Mac Jones, and it was Mac Jones who hits me back. He says he enjoys the chapter, but he said, be cautious, be very careful about how you handle and treat the story of Felton Clark, which kind of blew me away. So I'm listening like, you know, why? Like, what's going on? Like, tell me what's up. He says, you know, look, we saw we saw Felton Clark as an unquestionable race man. Right. That, that in, in essence, he's saying that without Felton Clark, again, much like with, with Jacob Reddick's, without Felton Clark laying that foundation where race consciousness and the second curriculum could thrive, mm-hmm. and it unquestionably and undoubtedly thri- uh, it, it thrived in the 40s and the 50s, then there, ha- there would have been no, no massive student protests emerging out of Southern University. Uh, and sure enough, as you examine the, the primary resources, as you look at the, the culture and the environment that Southern University is in the 40s and the 50s, it is one of the most radical and one of the most militant spaces um, in, in terms of my experience in, in examining the legacy of, of HBCUs. Again, there's, there's probably no larger mass movement of student activism that exists in the 20th century than what comes out of Southern University in the 1960s. We're talking about thousands of students taking to the street, thousands of students saying, hey, we're going to come out of classes and we're going to take to the street. That was unparalleled. That was unheard of. But it happens at Southern University. And again, part of my underlying argument is that none of that is, is a knee-jerk reaction. All of that is set into motion by generations of, of, of students being exposed to the second curriculum. And, and Felton Clark was one of the people who sets that in motion. Felton Clark is one of the people who creates that environment, who creates this radicalized space. And it just so happens that when the movement explodes, he's caught off guards by it. He, he does Because, again, this idea of direct action protests of black youth going into to 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 crest stores and to Woolworths 
and demanding that their rights be upheld. I mean, black that scared the hell out of black folks. <laughs> black college administrators, it scared the hell out of, out of black parents. It scared the hell scared, scared the hell out of Dr. King. <laughs> Even Dr. King, like, you know, nobody was ready for the sentence. Mm-hmm. There's this great letter that I find from, from Solomon Say written to Septima Clark. And Septima Clark, these are both, you know, unquestionable titans of the movement. Absolutely. And Solomon Say, who, who's a, a black administrator, uh, uh, not a black administrator, but a black minister in Alabama, they're writing to each other and they kind of ask the question, and I'm paraphrasing here, but both of them are like, and I'm sure Septima Clark would have said this, but she says, basically, where the hell did these cities come from? <laughs> where do they come from? Right. They're, they're all kind of taken off guard because this idea of black youth putting their bodies on the line, going into spaces they had always been told not to go into uh, and demanding liberation. Um, that's something that it, it shook up the world. And that, that's a direct quote from Ralph Abernathy, who called Dr. King on the phone when he heard about the sit-ins and said, hey, I think we found something that will shake up the world. And, and that's what was emerging out of these institutions during this period. So Felton Clark, Jacob Reddick's. They were men who were caught within that that crosshairs within the Deep South and, and held and held accountable by racist white state legislators who did not want to see these institutions um, that they thought to be benign, that they thought to be uh, uh, supportive to, uh, to, to white supremacy, all of a sudden erupting in black radicalism. But that's exactly what happens. But my argument is that that doesn't happen without people like Jacob Raddix, without people like Felton Clark, really setting the pace and setting the uh, setting the standard for the second curriculum to exist and to thrive within these institutions mm-hmm. from that new Negro period up through World War II. Right. Yeah, setting the pace for students to shake up the world. Love yeah. that. Um, well, we'll go to another <laughs> shaking up um, <laughs> at North Carolina A&T, where... Right. Um, Students known for uh, starting uh, the sit-in movement, catalyzing a national civil rights movement. Um, you, uh, uh, yeah, you examine uh, A&T after in a different period it, after uh, uh, SNCC's decline, um, and with the rise of Black Power initiatives, um, specifically. Uh, SOBU, which is the Student Organization for Black Unity, and Malcolm X Liberation University, as well as the Greensboro Greensboro Association for for Poor People. Um, And so you're looking at the relationship between Black power organizing and the Black college communitas in this period. Please tell us more about this. So... I get, you know, a lot of people rag me about this chapter. Say, oh, you know what? You wrote that chapter. They they rag me about it because they say, you wrote that chapter because you went to ANT, right? (laughs) You you just wanted to talk about ANT. You know, I mean, you know, they rag me about it in in a joking way, right? (laughs) Uh, But one of the main, one of the main reasons why I I wrote that chapter on ANT and the Black Power Movement is that in his brilliant study, um, one of my mentors, Bill Chafe, who mm-hmm. longtime professor at Duke University, um, mm-hmm. wrote this, this study entitled Civilities and Civil Rights. I encourage you to read it if, if you don't have that on your list. Civilities and Civil Rights, where he examines the legacy of activism out of Greensboro, more broadly speaking. And uh, it's in that chapter where he documents the fact that, look, Greensboro was one of the headquarters and this is, is, I'm paraphrasing him, but, you know, this is pretty much a direct quote. It's like Greensboro was a, one of the headquarters of the Black Power Movement throughout the South. Right. And it's, you know, we think about Black nationalism and, and again, these organizations emerging, which had very important national implications. Greensboro 
becomes a space where that is happening throughout the South. And so if I knew if I wanted to talk about the South and, and HBCUs and Black power, I knew I wanted to center the story of why that all took place because of the presence of schools like Ante, because of the presence of, of schools like like Bennett. Uh, and, and so, and again, this is, you talk about feeling missing pages. I think this is one of the gaps that we don't really understand about the Black Power Movement. We often, when we, when we talk about the Black Power Movement, the, the focus tends to shift um, to looking at Black, the emergence of Black studies programs at predominantly white mm-hmm. institutions, mm-hmm. Uh, at the anti-war movement. But HBCUs were still very much centered within the explosion of the Black Power era uh, post-1966. Uh, and, and in fact, I found it to be a very much a natural progression uh, into that in- environment of Black youth who were willing, who were ready to move in more radical, more defiant ways. And, and Ante just became a really logical place for me to conclude the study and to talk about how, how Ante positioned itself to, to become a home uh, 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 to Sobu. Um, literally, Sobu, its first conference is on Ante's campus, uh, the Student Organization of Black Unity, which really kind of steps in and occupies the vacuum, which is left from a, a SNCC, which is beginning to fray and beginning to, to kind of fall apart uh, in the late 60s. Um, but Sobu, the Greensboro Association of Poor People, we get the incredible example of black local organizing within the midst of the black power movement. Uh, you know, uh, again, all these nationalist groups coming in and out. You have the, the relocation of Malcolm X Liberation University, um, which was founded in Durham. It literally relocates to Greensboro. Why? Because of the activist energies that are emerging out of Greensboro. They, they found it to be a very uh, a prime and ideal location. And again, the, the energy that's creating that is North Carolina A&T. The energy that is creating that is, is the student activism emerging from Bennett and, and A&T. And, and I thought it was a very logical place, as I said before, for me to conclude um, the study and to talk about how HBCUs were still very much centered within that movement. And what do we find? We find, again, the second curriculum still active, still thriving. We see relationships with students uh, and faculty members. But we also begin to see elements of change. Right. We also begin to see um, in the late 60s. And again, we talked about the legacy of these black studies uh, uh, departments being founded on, on on predominantly white institutions. Well, that's siphoning off. I refer to it as a brain drain beginning to siphon off black educators who for generations had exclusively taught at HBCUs. All of a sudden now they're being offered positions and jobs at PWIs. And in some ways, that sets us up for for the epilogue of the book, the conclusion of the book, where I talk about the corruption of the HBC communitas and how that environment is going to be radically altered um, because of changes that are going on in higher education uh, in the late 60s and into the 70s and even to the 80s and 90s. So um, but you know, I thought that the A&T chapter um, was, was just a great space to show how HBCUs were still playing a critical role. Um, when you look at the legacy of, of activism at these institutions, you know, we often we talk about uh, South Carolina State University and, and the Orangeburg Massacre. We talk about mm-hmm. the shootings at, at Jackson State. Uh, mm-hmm. We talk about the, the, the shooting that took place uh, and the invasion uh, of Antis campus by the National Guard where a student by the name of Willie Grimes is, is, is killed in 1969. Um, these institutions were uh, were just uh, a rife with with activism and energy. Uh, during the late 60s and the 70s and early 70s. And I think it's a very important story to tell. 
Right. Absolutely. And I've seen some of the the Sobu documents myself. And just when I read them, it just gives me chills because you could just feel the energy just radiating yeah. out, of the, out of the document. Um, yeah. Let's, I want to, the, so your epilogue is uh, really generative and, um, you know, you have meditation on a different world and Spike Lee school <laughs> days and the ways that HBCUs appear in, in, on TV and in culture. Um, can you tell us just about that and, um, and where we are today with, with HBCUs in your opinion? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the epilogue, um, deals with the, the corruption of that space. In fact, it's entitled, it's a different world. Um, the rise of the hip hop generation and the corruption of the black cops communitas. And, and, um, you know, I start that, that, that that epilogue off in a very personal way, talking about myself, <laughs> you know, and I, and I talk about that generation. And man, what a wonderful time um, to be at an HBCU in the '80s and the '90s. Uh, it indeed was a, a a golden renaissance, if you will, of Black colleges as it related to the popular culture. Uh, you have hip hop emerging. Uh, you have these incredible hip hop stars wearing and brandishing um, black college clothing. Uh, I'm sure many uh, folks from that era remember the African American College Alliance brand and how all these hip hop artists would wear it in their videos. And, and then you have different world itself. You've got, you know, in prime time, HBCU life being put on full display. And it wasn't really until Debbie Allen takes over that show in season two um, that she really, I mean, Debbie Allen herself is a product of Howard University. And she says, look, we're going to put this on steroids and really begin to, 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 to heighten what set curriculum really meant on these institutions and campuses. And she did it in a very brilliant way. Um, so for, from different world to Spike Lee to, you know, all these other, the, these artists, um, they really began to, to bring black college life into, into the public square, into the public eye, which really hadn't existed before. Um, uh, but at the same time <laughs> in, in the seventies and the eighties and nineties, you also kind of get, again, this space, evolving, um, and, and some may even say devolving uh, in a way, as it relates to um, the support of what I always argue has always been one of the heartbeats of activism um, within higher education, within the academy. That is social sciences and the humanities. Is that, you know, and you you alluded to this, I think, in, in, um, in some of your early uh, points about uh, the sort of Cold War atmosphere of, mm-hmm. of the 50s and 60s and how that really transformed the, the intellectual landscape of, of higher education in general, right? right. Not only do we see uh, an increase in um, what, what Eisenhower referred to as, as the, the military-industrial complex, we also began to see um, the, the, the rise of corporate America and how many of these institutions have come, become corporate breeding grounds. And some would argue that's still the case. In 2021, they've become these sort of corporate breeding grounds. But at the same time, HBCUs are not impervious to that. And, and, and that energy begins to cycle its way through, uh, through through black colleges, and it transforms the curriculum. In fact, I use this graph in the, in the epilogue, which shows how the humanities and social sciences begin to tailor off. And in doing so, that's, that impacts in some way, um, empowering um, the voices of these young people who are no longer being explicitly taught to, to be critical 
of the human condition, to be critical uh, of the, the political environments that uh, uh, envelop Black people in this country. Um, and this is not to suggest that, again, HBCUs all of a sudden cease in producing Black activists and Black leaders and, and, and Black uh, community members who were engaged and, and, and changed within their communities. Um, because clearly that, that, that remains. Um, but there is a warping, if you will, of that fabric uh, in the in the 80s and, and the 90s, and again, I, I would argue that that some of that continues even to this day, uh, and, and it threatens um, the 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 power of these institutions in serving as catalysts as they once did uh, um, for for activism moving forward. Um, and so, again, this is not suggest that we're not going to continue to produce people like. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and mm-hmm. Ibram X. Kendi and Stacey Abrams and and, mm-hmm. and Raphael Warnock. All these people are, are products of HBCUs. And again, the, the list is so long in terms of, of folks who are products of black colleges who are using their voices for for the greater good. Uh, but but my concern is that as we we weaken the humanities and social sciences on these campuses and as we continue to promote STEM fields mm-hmm. uh, and, and continue to open up these spaces as corporate breeding grounds, um, that in some ways we're losing the true essence mm-hmm. of what Black colleges have represented. And again, this goes back to the very beginning where we started. You know, these spaces were intended to be different. These spaces were different in terms of their legacy of radicalism and militancy and the, the ability to politicize generations of young people who use their voices to, to deconstruct white supremacy. We need those voices now more than ever. Right. And, and my, my concern is, uh, is that moving forward, um, will they still serve in that capacity or will we simply be serving the interests of, of corporate America like so many other institutions of higher education are doing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's why I love the, the epilogue because it's a, it's a powerful call to action. Um, the, the entire book uh, lays out uh, kind of all that there is uh, that, that we have to protect, uh, to protect the communitas, to protect uh, the second curriculum. Um, so that's why I, I really enjoyed that. Um, before we go, I have one more question for you. Um, mm-hmm. Would you like to share with our listeners what you are working on now? Um, sure. Yeah, I'm actually moving in, in, in a different direction. I, um Myself and one of my colleagues, um, we are in the process of producing an edited volume, um, which looks more explicitly at the legacy of of, uh, of, of HBCUs. Um, so I've combined forces with um, Dr. Derek White uh, at the University of Kentucky, who wrote an incredible and extremely brilliant book on the legacy of, of HBCUs and, and uh, Black college football, uh, specifically looking at specifically looking at Florida A and M University. Uh, so if you don't have blood, sweat, and tears, make sure you go out and get that book as well. He talks about FAMU and Jake Gaither and, and how um, Black college football transformed and changed uh, in, in the late uh, 20th century. Um, but myself, Dr. Derek White, and uh, Dr. Melanie Price, uh, who's the director of uh, the newly instituted Ruth Simmons uh, Center for Race and Social Justice at Prairie View, uh, we're going to be putting together an edited volume which looks more broadly at HBCUs. We want to talk about the legacy of of Black college bands. We want to talk about the legacy of uh, Black fraternities and sororities on these institutions. We want to talk about the legacy of, of, of political activism that emerged out of these, these, these campuses. And so we're going to bring together a team of, of writers and, and, and essayists to, to contribute to, to this study. Um, and so that's 
that's that project. But my next monograph is actually looking at I'm moving away from uh, the history of, of black education. And I'm trained as a, a social movement historian, so social movements have always fascinated me. And I'm actually looking at a, uh, a 1898 lynching case uh, from Lake City, South Carolina. Uh, many of you may be familiar with the name of Fraser Baker, uh, who was a black postmaster uh, who was uh, um, violently uh, assassinated in that city in 1898, in February of 1898. Uh, he, along with his one-year-old daughter, um, were lynched. Mm-hmm. Um, but because he was a black postmaster, it actually produced uh, a federal case. Uh, there was a trial um, that took place, which was very rare, right, in 1898 mm-hmm. for any type of, of, of lynching um, to, to end up and result in, in, in some sort of uh, court case. Well, this produced a, a federal case that took place in South Carolina. Um, and really what I'm kind of dealing with and tackling is the legacy of whiteness itself mm-hmm. and how whiteness often responds um, to when it feels as though it is losing its currency, um, to when it's losing its value. And I think we kind of see in a very contemporary way um, how some of that is is playing out on a national stage uh, even today. And, and so the book is tentatively titled um, Losing Whiteness, Power, Privilege, and Murder in Post-Reconstruction South Carolina. And again, it looks at how um, the, this, this white community responded uh, to the fact that all of a sudden you've got to get your mail from a black man. Uh, and, and Fraser Baker not only represents um, a, a postmaster, uh, but he also was an out local activist. He was a teacher. Um, he was a leader uh, within um, uh, the farming unions uh, that existed, uh, the Colored Farmers Alliance that existed in, in South mm-hmm. Carolina. Um, so he was perceived as a threat. He was perceived as a problem. And, and he was perceived as, as someone who represented the ascendancy of black people, and he was violently done away with. And again, so I really want to get at this case, how it unfolded, but I also want to talk about how whiteness has responded historically um, to feeling as though it's again it's losing its currency and it's losing its value. Mm. That's, so that's the that's the next book project. Yeah, that sound that's an important an important project. Both of them are, um, and I hope that we can get you on the show in the future to talk about that one as well. Um, Dr. Favors, I want to thank you for being on the show today and for speaking with us about shelter in a time of storm, how Black colleges foster generations of leadership and activism. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. 